Well, we are in a series. If you've been here for a couple weeks, if you haven't, I'm going to fill you in on a little bit of a, a quick um, outline. We are in a series called Blind Spots. You know, every car has a blind spot, and you've probably been honked at or yelled at or done something in traffic in that blind spot. And so Jack talked the first week, and we're talking about the prophets um, in, the, in the Old Testament, and uh, Jack talked about Hosea and had a tendency to wander from God. And we, as we wander from God and, we, and we're unfaithful and we exchange cheap imitation things for the true attachment of, of who God is in the relationship with God. And then last week, did a, Brandon did a great job with Amos. And he talked about placing our comfort um, between God and so that we don't have a full relationship with, with God. And we're going to talk about another one tonight, but I'm going to have a little bit of fun. Anybody down with some fun? Yeah. All right. I, as I was studying for this, um, I get a little freaked out about talking and teaching. And so I was like, what fun thing could we do that would help me kind of relax and, and just trust God and do this? So I want you guys to watch this video. And this made me, this made me laugh um, because it was something that I would probably try to do if I wasn't old and turning 40. All right, let's watch this. Just watch the legs of people. Like they try to do normal things. Wouldn't this be so crazy? And look at how uncomfortable is that? They got their arms like stuck next to each other. Would anybody down with a cheer? Would anybody want to play? Look, giving each other five and, you know. And these guys actually commentate on this. This is crazy. You need like size 14s. It's actually a little bit fast, and so it's even funnier. So there we go. The bubble soccer game. Yeah. And so you're like, Brian, why would we... One, it's just super funny. Because um, if you watch it in regular speed, and the, for the first time I watched it, these, these two guys are literally going towards the ball. Like in a normal soccer game, it would be a challenge. And literally, they come running and smash each other, and the ball never moves. It's just like, boom. But uh, my week, we, we are facing a prophet that is stuck in a bubble. He become blinded in a bubble and not wanting to, to do anything outside of that. He was blinded by God's chosen people and he wanted a, to be a safe distance from people that were different than him or people that were sinning. He couldn't get past his own fears to step outside his bubble. He couldn't even give God's grace even though it was given to him. And Jonah's problem is not that much different from ours. When we struggle to serve, when we struggle to speak, and we struggle to share the grace and the good news of who Jesus is. So tonight we're going to spend some time in the story of Jonah. And we're going to see why Jonah was put in, in as a prophet and what we can learn and what we can glean from the things that he experienced. Let's go ahead and turn in your electric device, electronic device, or in your Bible. We're going to go to Jonah. 
It's past Ezekiel. It's a little book. If you don't, if you flip two pages or you've got fat fingers like mine, you'll, you'll skip right over it. But we're going to read Jonah 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of, I don't know how to say it. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because the wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away in the Lord and headed toward Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for a port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Right off the bat, God is asking Jonah to do something. This isn't like, hey, here's the story. Here's the content. It's bam. Jonah, go do this. His mission was to go preach against the city of Nineveh. To let them know what God thought of them. Now let me give you a background on Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was a seriously, seriously bad place. It was, it was a ruthless enemy of Israel. And it sits exactly about 200 miles north of modern-day Iraq. In Baghdad, Baghdad, Iraq. In the book of Nahum, if you read of Nahum, it, this, is how, this is how they described Nineveh. That, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. That sounds like a good vacation spot, right? You know, that would be, you know, travel America. Nineveh was so violent and it was known that it would cut off heads of people. Isn't that ironic in what we've seen in our media today? Same area. They would cut off the heads of people, put them on post and stick them out on the walls as trophies and as of warnings of how brutal and how vicious they were. Not only was Nineveh uh, uh, an enemy of Israel, but in Hosea 11.5, God said that he would use Nineveh to judge the Israelites because of their sin. And this is the place that Jonah was supposed to go. Not only was it horribly wicked, dangerous, but it wasn't a great place for a Jewish person. But Jonah, being a prophet, knows that God wants to give those people a second chance. He knows that God will give him grace. He's calling them back to a relationship with him. God says, go. And Jonah says, no. Over the years being in ministry, I, I talk to people a lot about what, what should I do? Should I go for this job? Should I go to that? Should I give money to that person? Should I do this? And so I've broken it down into go-go moments and no-no moments. These are moments in our lives, just like Jonah just had, of when the God spoke to him or it's a small voice or a nudging that you feel like, hey, I should probably go help that person. Or I should listen or I should ask some questions or I should, I should do something. And you're being prompted. Those are go moments. And they also have no-no moments where God says, whoa, the Spirit tells you to stop. Don't go there. Don't go to that party. Don't, don't drive down that street. Don't be around those kinds of friends. And so those are the moments that Jonah is experiencing right now. God's telling him 
in the text, I love it, in the, in the scripture it says, arise and go is the commandment in Hebrew. And you know what the text says about what Jonah did? It says, he arose to flee. He not only says no, he jumps on a ship. Israelites are mostly land people. And so he was bound determined not to go to Nineveh. And if you look at on the map where Nineveh is and where he was headed is so far away. It's not like he picked a, a town just shallow or short of it. No, he picked the absolutely farthest point he can. He made a premeditated act of disobedience. Has anybody done one of those? Where we knew we were supposed to do something. And we made a decision. Nope, I'm not doing it. Jonah just didn't fall on the boat. He made a little bit of deci- he made conscious decisions to fall into disobedience. We normally don't just fall into sin. We make little choices after little choices that then leads us to where we're going. In verse 3, it says two times that he was running from God. Interesting thing, if you read in 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah was used with the Israelites to reform boundaries, to reform the, the, um, God's people, to get them organized and get them together and to reform Israel. And God was asking him to step outside those boundaries, step outside of that comfort. Even to an enemy, God was asking him to go. Jonah wanted Nineveh ruined, not rescued. He knew that God was going to rescue him, but he wanted it ruined because they were opposite and they were enemies of his people that he, he loved. He understood that God's grace is bigger than the boundaries of cities. It's bigger than boundaries of anything that we can put up. That is the reason why he decided to hightail it to somewhere different. Jonah knew God was gracious and Jonah didn't think the Ninevites deserved the grace that he possessed. They were sinners. They were different. They couldn't be trusted. And he didn't want them around. How many of us are the same way? That we've come up with some kind of boundary, some kind of thing, some kind of question, some kind of filter in which we don't want to step out of. The questions I could hear in your conversations is, God, they really don't deserve a second chance or a third chance. They were just wasted. Or I could hear, I don't think they'll really change. What if they just take advantage of us? What will happen to our church if they come? What will happen to our kids if they play together or they, they, they know of each other? What will happen to our nice fit community if we let other people unlike us in so we all have unstated boundaries that we run through and we have created filters 
Because we fear the unknown. We fear the outcome. And we don't want God messing with our cute little Christian bubble. We get blinded by the bubble. Think about it. Think about Jonah's position. He was a prophet. So if I was going to read to you a job description of a prophet, it would be this. His job description would, who reveals the attributes of God to men, to make the law known, call back people who have gone astray, help them worship, to warn the sin and of disobedience, to foretell the coming of the Messiah and future events, and to record history of God's dealing with man. When we get blinded by the bubble, we let fear change our focus. When we get blinded by the bubble, we let fear change our focus. But he became, Jonah came so preserving his bubble and so deep in it that he chose fear over what God had asked him to go do. He changed his focus. Jonah had a lot to fear. If you th- think about it, and I, as I was studying, I was kind of weighing it out in, in, if I was in Jonah's shoes, and I've been in Jonah's shoes many a time. But there was the Ninevites. Here's these horribly awful people that have hung people's heads on spears. And God had just told them, he just told him to go tell them that God was not happy with them. Those are legit fears. Because can you see in your own mind, your head and your smiling face up on a, up on a spear? But on the opposite side, here he had just spent a bunch of time rebuilding Israel, and now he's off talking with and being a part of the, the people group that God had already said was going to judge them. And he'd be seen as a traitor. Or even worse, a Ninevite. He let fear change his point of view. He was focusing externally and living in what he embraced God was doing in the world. And then when God asked him to do something that wasn't comfortable or wasn't, wasn't what he thought, he decided to change to an in, internal focus on himself. You see, it's easy to stay safe. Don't you think? It's easy to be comfortable. It's easy to just go with the flow. Maybe you felt this in your life. When you have seen the pain of a coworker or a friend or a situation you didn't know how to speak to, and out of fear you didn't say anything and you kept quiet. Or maybe it's fear of someone asking you to do more than you're ready to give away of your finances or of your time. Or maybe it's fear what will happen if your kids hang out with those kids. So we stay in our bubble. We dig deeper. We run around like those soccer players trying to live life, trying to keep safe, trying to keep comfortable. We stay in our comfortable neighborhoods and we never go outside that. And we even... If God asks us to volunteer, 
we stay at a safe distance because we want to get, we don't want to get too close to those people. Fear can change our focus. I have an example of this. Um, I have a nonprofit that we did a lot of stuff with kids coming out of community service and still do it. Um, and we were just, just getting started. And there was a, I got a bunch of calls for community service. And so I got this one call. Um, it happened to be a 15 year old. Um, and so had the conversation. I talk with them and I say, you know, what, what is your offense? Why were you in jail? What was the, why were you in juvie? And, and so they have to tell me, and that's kind of the safety. So I can put him in certain spots. And I don't know why I asked that question. I only had like three or four things for him to do. And this kid on the other line goes, I will, how many hours do you have for community service? And, uh, he goes 1500. If I was on a video conference, I think I would have been, I think he would have like hung up the phone. My face just went and, uh, and he's like, and I, I know who you are. And I was like, Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. He's like, you were, um, your wife was my fourth and fifth grade teacher. And I was like, Oh, perfect. This is now I'm, I'm committed now. And so he knows who I am. So I can't say, Oh, I don't have any projects for you. And, uh, and while he was a student of my wife's, we had done some stuff for their family. We had provided some meals and some other things. And so, um, so I felt the prompting in my spirit. I, I felt it as clear as a punch in the stomach that I knew I had to commit that I knew I had to, to help him get 1,500 hours of community service. Anybody on community service hours on a healthy way, like through class or anything like that? It's difficult. Try to do 1,500. And so I agreed, and I said, okay, um, I'll come get you, and we'll start working. The only time I officed at my house, the only thing I had projects was stuff around my house, around our neighborhood, and around the schools and stuff. And so I said, okay, let's do it. Well, my... My job is to protect my family. That's my job. And did I mention that he was a gangbanger and he was in jail for putting people in trunks and literally shooting at police officers and doing all kinds of stuff that you can just imagine. And so I was, I, he was working at our house and, and my, my, my immediate family was not so happy with me. Uh, a little bit of fear going on. My in-laws thought we were foolish and they may let me know about it. And everyone was cr- just coming down on me. This is even more ironic. His probation officer lived four streets from us and found out because they have to turn in where they're doing the community service that it was at my house. And this guy decided to now put my name through mud because I was helping someone and literally spread out through the whole neighborhood and through his connections that this guy's rap sheet was 20 pages long and that I didn't need to be helping him. And if I was helping him, that he needed to just keep it. I needed to exit out of one out of our neighborhood and and I could only come in a certain neighborhood. And if I was, if he ever found out or was ever damaged, literally threatened me in, in my own front yard. I could have changed my focus and said, blown him off and said, this is, I don't want to do this. This is not ridiculous. This is, I'm, I'm not comfortable with you coming to my house and with the baggage you have and the, and the hurt that you have and all that. I, I don't want to deal with that. But I knew God placed him on 
my property and on my heart and with a connection with Kimberly that I knew that he was supposed to be in our, in our relationship no matter what. And I still have a relationship with him today. He's got kids. He's doing pretty well. And he's got his own company. But if I would have blown him off, who was going to help? Jonah's fears were very, very real. It would be like you getting a plane ticket into the middle of Iraq right now and asking you to go preach the word of God in three days. My fears for my family were very real. No one is saying that the fears that Jonah had or the fears that I had were made up. But when God asks you to do something, you, it shouldn't, fear should not stop you from doing it. But so Jonah chose to run. He was blinded by his bubble, blinded by the fears, and he boards the boat. And I'm going to paraphrase his next couple sections. He gets on the boat, and as soon as he gets out of the boat in the middle of the, middle of the lake, a storm happens. It's just chaos. Chaos is just going around. And uh, the people on the boat are like hucking things off the boat, trying to make the boat, the boat lighter and trying to figure out how they're going to survive this storm. They're all praying to their own gods and saying, God, save us. God, save us. And they're doing everything they can possibly do. And they're like, they finally found Jonah. And if you guys have known the story, Jonah is asleep. He's asleep in the belly of the boat. And I don't know about you, but that's a lot like us. We believe in Jesus. We come to church. But there's chaos around us, and we choose not to deal with it. And so Jonah, they shake him, they wake him up, and they uh, say, hey, why aren't you praying to your God? Why aren't you praying to your God to save us? And he goes, oh, guys, it's me. It's me. There's the reason I'm fleeing from God. And so it's me. And so they take him up and they, they do, um, they cast lots and they try to do straws and, and he, he loses. And he's like, guys, throw me overboard, throw me overboard. And the, this, my God is the God of the seas of the air of the land and lists out who God is. And he said, just throw me overboard and all this will be fine. And they have this conversation back and forth. And finally, they're like, okay, I'm not going to die. If this guy, this dude thinks it's him, then we're going to chuck him. So they chuck him over and he hits the water. Instantly, the seas calm down. In that act of obedience, he knew that it was him. All those guys on that ship saw that Jonah's God was the God of the sea, of the wind. And they come to proclaim him and acknowledge that God is their God. Jonah gets swallowed. God provides a huge whale. I love this story. I was in a playing kit. It was a kid and I got to crawl through the whale. It was really cool. But imagine that being literally knowing that you are running from God and you're just going to jump into the ocean. That's scary. And so he does it. And he, he filters down and a big whale swallows him up. He's in three days and uh, he's in, imagine the smells. 
I just, I have to sit there for a second. Because you've been to San Diego, you've been around water, you've been around the dumpsters at Joe's Crab Shack. They don't smell so good. And so, I think the smells got to him. And he says a prayer to God. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me in the depths into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled around me. All of your ways and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished for your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The depths surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath buried me in forever. But you, Lord our God, brought my life up. When my life was embedding, I remembered you. Lord, and my prayer rose to you, your holy temple. Those who cling to the worthless idols turn away from God's love from them. But I will shout of grateful praise. I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So he was in a spot where he realized that he wasn't going to get out of this one. I mean, what are the chances of being swallowed by a whale, right? And he prays to God. He said, I am, I am, you are God. And so he does that. He prays and guess what happens? All that wonderful stuff that he's been hanging out with for the three days gets thrown up on a beach or thrown up. And he's out. And let's pick up the story again. Now Jonah is, let's see what the instructions from God comes. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Let me read that again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, the message I give you. Jonah obeyed, and the word of the Lord went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. I think there's a principle here that we really need to talk about. In our journeys with Christ, and when we enter a journey with Christ, we, we start off on the path. We start off, um, and we're going fine, we're going good, and then all of a sudden we realize, oh, you know what? I've been doing this for a while. I can figure it out, God. And you take a little side path. If we're hiking or doing that, we take a little, a little jaunt over. And then we realize, oh, I'm, I'm, that was, I thought was a smart idea. But now I, I'm far from where you want me to be. And I, I'm over here. So you know what? I'm going to just take a, take a trip over here. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work. And his path is here. And we get off. If we just join back up over here, we're missing out on something, his experience, his love and his grace that we don't get to have. And so he lovingly does is he brings us back to the part of the path where we've stepped off or where we didn't trust him. And then we get to go experience and love and enjoy the path that God has set for us. So be thinking of those those times where you've stepped off the path and you've done your own thing. Did you get to join right back up to God farther in the path or did he bring you back down like Jonah and tell him a second time, I need you to go to Nineveh. Jonah obeys and he goes to Nineveh. The city's so big that uh, it would take him three days to walk 
and to preach. That's a long time. The first day he goes out and says, the Lord God is going to give you 40 days and you need to come back to God. And in that first day, in verse 5, it says, the Ninevites believed God. Everybody turns, the people fast, they put on sackcloth, which was an expression in that day of humbleness or remorse. Just imagine that. Getting out of the whale, going to do what God's asked you to do, still having those fears of they could put my head on a spear. And the first day, the city comes back to God. Not only the city, but in chapter 3, the king humbles himself, tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, and calls urgently upon God for the whole city to call God and to, to, uh, to ask for humility and forgiveness from God. And in verse 10, it says, God had compassion on them. So none of, none of Jonah's fears ever took place. This fears of being uh, a traitor to the Israelites or being a kebab in the Nineveh wall. God shows up and the entire city is saved. An amazing miracle occurs when God changes the hearts of vicious people and prideful people. Just let's sit for a second. There was over 100,000 people in Nineveh at the time. One man being obedient to God's plan walks in says who God is, the whole city comes to know who Jesus is or who God is at that time. Where's the fear in that? That's a, a miraculous thing that happens. I would be jumping up and down if 100,000 people in Tucson found out who Jesus was. Would we not be dancing and having a, a big old party here in Tucson? Oh my goodness. Obviously you guys aren't salvation party people. <laughs> if a hundred thousand people came in one time to know who Jesus was in the city of Tucson, Tucson would not look the same. Our nation wouldn't look the same. And God's kingdom would be doing amazing things because they are now brought back to him. And with that big party, that big thing happening, um, you think Jonah would be ecstatic, right? You think he would be super party? Like, yes, you're part of my family. You're part of my bubble. You're part of this. Uh, no. Let's see what happens in chapter 4, 1 through 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, that is what I tried to forestall, <clears throat> forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew what you were going to do, being gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. 
not only was he over he wasn't overjoyed, he was enraged. He was enraged. The Hebrew the Hebrew word here um, that me, that he used for displeased or he wasn't happy means evil. So in Jonah's words, but Jonah to Jonah, this was a great, great evil. A great evil? Jonah is so upset at God because he thinks a hundred thousand people coming to know who God is, is evil. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Why? Why is he so enraged? When we get blinded by the bubble, we become selfish with grace. Let me read that again. When we get blinded by the bubble, we become selfish with grace. Deep down, we don't think God's grace should be for everyone. That's troubling. But truly, Jonah doesn't think Ninevites are worth it. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah knew that God would forgive the Ninevites. He knew what God was all about. But he'd rather, and it would delight him, to see them be just the wrath of God just unleashed on them. The irony of this story is Jonah was so grateful for God's compassion and his grace and his mercy when he was in the belly of the fish. When God saved him, but unwilling to give compassion and grace to others. Jonah was so overwhelmed with anger that he wants to die. Jonah didn't want to go outside his bubble and give grace. He didn't want to go outside his boundaries because he was stuck in his bubble of comfort. In verse 5, 10, it says, Jonah goes, had gone out and sat down at the place of the east of the city. 5 and 10, he, he goes out in the city and he just, he's just sat himself down. And he's just perched to see what God's going to do with the city. He's, gonna, he's hoping and praying for the destruction of Nineveh. But a vine grows up behind him. And it gives Jonah some, some shade. And he was really happy about it. But then God provided a worm. We didn't do this in kids, kids talk. We didn't do the worm part. We just did the whole belly thing, you know. So God provided a worm to eat the vine and God provided a scorching wind 
and Jonah grew faint. So we're going to catch up in chapter 4 through 9 through 11. It said, But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. He should be in Hollywood. A little dramatic. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left, and also many animals. Jonah was still blinded by his comfort, still blinded by his little bubble of, of himself. He was internally just wanting something different. And the beauty of this is God has no bubbles. Everyone is important to God. We love it when grace comes our direction, when we get forgiven for an overdraft, or when we, someone gives us relational forgiveness. We love that. But we question when we feel like others aren't paying for theirs or they aren't working it out enough. I say we love people and claim we are open as a body believer, a church and in, in the world that we come as you are Christianity, come as you are as a Christian. But so often we size up people on how much they give or what they look like or their background we question their motives, their hearts. We question, do they, do they really fit here? And it's so easy to get into that bubble. It's so easy to get into that bubble deep and forget there is a world out there that is desperate to know God. And He is desperate, wanting us to bring them back to him. Bill Hybels is a pastor in Chicago and uh, I read a lot of his stuff and he wrote a book called um, Walk Across the Room and it's talking about um, Christians, people that believe in Jesus um, become in a bubble and they don't interact with people that are far from God or disconnected with God. And so he, um, he has this graph and so uh, they're going to put it up on the screen real quick and I'm going to explain it to you. So on the far left is, um, the night can't even see the numbers. All right, cool. So the top number is 20. And so the numbers on the left are the graph represents interactions, um, with people that are far from God. Okay. That's the top. And the, on the bottom is years with Christ. So this dot over here would be 15, 15 years. And this dot would be zero on the bottom of the Y and X axis. And so in the first two to three years, we're getting 20 or so interactions with people far from God that don't know who God is. And we're talking with them. We're taking them to lunch. We're having coffee. We're interacting with them. So year three, wow, we're down to like 10. And then year seven, eight through 15, we're having zero interactions with people that are far from God. 
I was depressed. I literally looked at it in this book and I was, and I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And I was thinking, no, that's not right. That's not right. There, there's no way. And then I did the, I read some more and this is not just an American thing or just not an Arizona or a Tucson thing. This is people that believe in Jesus Christ over a huge portion that they've tested. So I'm going to use, give you a second. Look at the graph and put yourself, if you've been a believer in Jesus Christ for six years, look where you're at. Two, look where you're at. One, And anybody farther? I don't know if you... Well, you know what? It'd be interesting. I just thought of this. It'd be interesting if we continue this graph farther and farther and farther is if we spent more time or been a Christian longer, if we have to start to have a negative impact. That would be interesting to see. So sit on that for a second. The story of Jonah is a shocking contrast between our hearts and the heart of God. Jonah is obstinate and angry, but God is gracious and compassionate. Jonah is concerned only for his own people, and God is concerned for all people. But the true beauty of this book, as I've been reading it and studying it, is that it's about God's heart. It's not about Jonah. It's about God's heart. That God's grace is bigger than the boundaries that we put on him. He's bigger than the comfort zones that we try to stay in. And he's bigger than our fears. God calls us to trust him. And do what he's calling us to do. He's called us to be generous, not just with what we own, but what he's given us. Grace. Go ahead and just, I'm going to ask you some questions. And I just want you to really think about the questions that I'm giving you. And then I'm going to ask you to act on some of those questions. Where are you telling God, no, I won't go? Where are you telling God, no, I just won't go? What fear is causing you to lose focus on what God is calling the church and you to do? And you may be here tonight, maybe not even in a relationship with Jesus. You just were invited by a friend or felt like you needed to come. The relationship with Jesus Christ is probably the most amazing relationship that I've ever had. It doesn't add up to who I am. It doesn't add up to what I do. But it adds up to his grace 
and his sacrifice on the cross. So, if the Spirit is moving you in any point tonight, by any words that have come out of my mouth, or by words that have come out of this story, you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with where God is moving your heart. Not in a guilty way, but God wants to have a relationship with you. Either you know him or you don't know him. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to deepen it daily, minute by minute. And as we go into communion, I'm going to have you make a, make a statement. We haven't done this ever before, and I feel like if we are going to be not like Jonah, if we're going to be a church and a people that are going to be obedient to who God is, sometimes it's uncomfortable, and it's okay. So if you feel like your heart is being moved or God has touched you in a special way or you need... Christ in a special way, or if you just need to say, God, I, I've been running. I've been in the belly, stinking it up. And I want to do, and I need you to ask me the second time or the third time or the fourth time. I want you just to get up out of your seat as we start communion and just come down here and pray and ask God to renew you. Renew you in a way that is only he can do. Ask forgiveness for the fears of saying no and moving towards him. Because my worst fear as a leader of Element City Church is that Element City Church is asleep in the boat with chaos around us. And we're so comfortable where we are and so comfortable with what we do that we're trapped and there's people dying and in chaos around us. Dearly Father, Lord, your prophets are, are <laughs> they rocked me and Lord, I want to openly say that I'm a broken vessel. I'm a broken vessel. And Lord, I need you daily to push me out of my Christian bubble. Lord, that I, I want to see our city. I want to see my neighborhood. I want to see my family follow you well. And Lord, you've given us such a great sacrifice of grace and of you dying on the cross. And Lord, that's what we celebrate as we do communion. Lord, we take your body and the grape juice that symbolizes your blood, that you are covered. Lord, we can sip that juice and take that bread and remember that you are a God that is slow to anger, that is full of compassion, and that loves us dearly. Lord, let us have courage to be uncomfortable. Lord, get us uncomfortable. Disturb us where we are so that we can bring the chaos back to you. 
we can calm the chaos with your grace and your love. In Jesus' name.